Hello and welcome to this, the 40th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And as ever, we are bringing this to you free of charge. Just like we do every week, we have promised you that we'll never ever charge for these podcasts because I am a moron and could be making money out of these, but I'm not because we're giving it to you for free. Uh, But of course, we are looking for you to go and put your money back into Irish theatre. And what is the easiest way to go and do that? To go and buy yourself some tickets. Uh, You know, the whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And just going out there and buying yourself some tickets is the easiest, simplest, most direct way to go and do that. Go out there and support your local theatre company. Go out and support your local theatre. Go out there and help these stories get told. If, of course, theatre tickets are outside your price range at the moment, well, maybe shop around because there's a hell of a lot of very affordable theatre going on at the moment. I mean, you look at initiatives like Carl Shields' Theatre Upstairs and Lanigan's, you know, Soup and your show for a tenner, the lunchtime slot up in Bewley's, you know, a lot of these fringe venues around are charging, you know, from as little as a tenner in. And, you know, I think there's an awful lot of very accessible theatre out there. But I also recognise that for some people, a tenner might be a bit of a stretch this week or this month. And if that's the case, maybe look at going over to fundit.ie and uh, seeing if there's a theatre campaign being run over there because the donations there start as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. And of course, as ever, there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person, face-to-face, over a cup of coffee, you know, the old-fashioned way, or by sharing the link as a Facebook post, or by retweeting the link that we put out on Twitter. Go and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. That's of huge assistance to us. Go back and listen to our other episodes, which puts people like Peter Daly back in the charts, which kind of tickles me and tickles him, I guess. Uh, You can go and leave us a review over on iTunes, which is massively beneficial for us, uh, or even simply click to rate us. The five-star rating system over there is, uh, is massively useful for us, too. It bumps us up in their charts helps us spread the word. You can, of course, as ever, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. So it's been an amazing week for me this week. We are back on the road with Fight Night here at Rise Productions, and that's a very exciting and terrifying place to be. Um, it's very, very strange being back playing Dan Coyle Jr. again, having you know not done it for nine months and I haven't seen just the phenomenal performance that Mike Sheen put into it when we uh, when we flew it over to Glasgow for the Mayfesto Festival. Uh, it's very strange to get back into it. I'm stealing most of what Mike did with it because it was infinitely better than what I ever did. Um, and uh, it's, it feels great to be back. I mean, physically, it is heavy going. I'm not going to lie to you. Obviously, it's turnaround time between um, the house at the Abbey and the 1916 TV thing finishing up and me going into this was, was too tight to put in the kind of training I would usually put in for getting back into fight night. But mercifully, the coaches... Uh, that I have looking after me were very pleased with where my boxing still was, having not been at it in a while. Um, and, and and I managed to get the cardio up to scratch, so we, you know I can do the show full whack, uh, which feels great, I have to say, to be able to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm knackered after it, but it feels good to be able to do that. Um, I think maybe I'm carrying a few extra pounds than I would normally be as Dan Jr., but that's okay. I'm kind of just rushing through the line about being a middleweight. Um, but, you know, it's great. It's, it's lovely to be back doing it. And uh, what an amazing response we had from the audiences uh, this week as we took it out on the road down to the Owen Ree Festival in Callan and Kilkenny with uh, just the most amazing venue. It's a converted co-op, um, and it's almost in the round. It's it's a really beautiful space to play, and one that I kind of walked into going, geez, I would love to do a load more shows here. But brilliantly, they have a few guests. Uh, and to, so to the stage left side, they have a load of swallows nesting, and on the stage right side, they have a load of bats. And as any of you who have seen Fight Night or maybe heard the radio version of it, you will know that there is a section uh, in the middle of the play where we go into this nightmare sequence and Dan is walking through this tunnel and gets attacked by vampires. And I shit you not, in the middle of the play, as I'm going through the sequence where I'm being attacked by the vampires, the bats decide to descend from the rafters and swoop down on me and the audience. It was amazing. You couldn't script it. It was hilarious. And it's one of those ones you go... Okay, so I guess we're going to have live bats as a feature for the rest of this show. Let's roll with it. Uh, it was phenomenal. And a lovely night down in Kilkenny. Got to hang out with the guys from uh, Devious Theatre who made the trip out to Callan to come and see me, which was very much appreciated. Um, 
And then the following day, it was a really quick turnaround. It was a late night show in, in Callan. It was a 10 o'clock curtain there, so we only got down by about 11. Um, and then at 4 o'clock or quarter to 5 the next day, we were appearing at the uh, the Lissard Festival in Skibbereen. So that was quite a trek to get right the way out to West Cork to get the show ready for the afternoon. But um, what an amazing festival that was, an amazing lineup. Uh, we got to hang out with awful lots of exciting people, kind of, you know, spoken word people, poetry people, uh, great old time and bluegrass music people. We got to hang out at the West Cork Ukulele Orchestra. Uh, it was beautiful. And the response to Fight Night there absolutely blew me away. Um, I have my concerns about playing it, you know, outside of a traditional theatre venue. You know, you're playing it here in a big marquee tent at a rock festival. Um, so just, you know, the, the practicalities of filling that space because it's it's pretty, you know, you're not getting anything back in the way that in a theatre you can feel your voice coming back at you and you have an idea of how to gauge it. With this, you're in a big marquee with no back wall on it, basically. So the sound is spilling in from the main stage with the rock acts. You've got nothing to bounce it off. Um, and so I was concerned about filling it when we had no because I, I do fight without any mics at all just with it being so physical you can't really mic up for it um and uh and it was amazing i was able to fill the space and people were held like properly held for the entire show i was sure that people would be getting up and wandering out and coming in and whatever else but um there was a couple of hundred people in that tent who sat down there start to finish and uh, and lapped up every word of it which was a phenomenal feeling really really great response and a, and a real honor to be part of that uh, crowd an amazing weekend Really, really enjoyed myself, met some incredible people, had a few drinks after the show, which was very pleasant, I can tell you, given the amount of training I've been doing over the last little while. Um, just a really, really special experience. And my first time playing a big festival like that, which was uh, which is great, really great to do. Uh, and of course, then we'll be on the road with it now this weekend as well. We're taking it down to Bally Thomas and Wexford to the Gap Festival as well, which has been kind of organized there by the great Garrett Kyo, who's a wonderful actor in his own right. So really looking forward to getting down there. And, you know, it's fun being back on the road with this show again. We've uh, some exciting plans for it over the next little while as well. So it's it's nice to be pulling back on those gloves. And particularly at the moment with all the massive success of the boxers over at the Olympics. You know, you've got this whole show where a guy's talking about trying to get back to the London 2012 Olympics. And, uh, and we're getting just this amazing success over there. Obviously, the fellas are doing phenomenally well, but brilliantly for once it is a female who is getting the light shone on her and Katie Taylor is just doing so amazingly well I mean just those first two fights that I've seen so far have been phenomenal I mean she's a lady who I've been lucky enough to uh, to meet a couple of times over the course of the last few years doing this show and uh, what a superstar what an athlete uh, and, and what an ambassador for the country just amazing one of the nicest girls you could ever meet but Jesus Christ the hand speed that she has the powers that she has the foot footwork that she has just phenomenal I'm just sitting they're watching her in awe and uh, I think she can really go all the way it's uh, it's a beautiful beautiful thing so look that brings us to our guest as we speak about phenomenal ladies and uh, this one is really one of the best we have to offer it's the amazing Annie Ryan uh, and what an interesting story she has had uh, in her journey from the States to to Ireland and to being you know one of the stalwarts of the Irish theatre scene over I guess the last 20 years such an amazing director such an incredible eye for a visual stage picture such a you know, an innovator for physical theatre here in Ireland when, you know, that really wouldn't necessarily have been the most fashionable thing. Uh, she's a phenomenal lady. This is a really, really interesting interview. Great to get her perspective on things and, and what it's like to kind of be, I guess, in many respects, although she's been here so long, in many respects to be an outsider here looking in from the outside. It's a, it's a whole other world and a whole other viewpoint on Irish theatre and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. So look, here she is, the amazing Annie Ryan. <laughs> The wonderful Annie Ryan. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to chat to you. Well, hello. So let us, as we do every week, get back to the very beginning, um, because I'm guessing that's not a Port Marnock accent. No. Uh, so go back to the very start. How, when, where and why did a career in theatre occur oh, to you? Oh, God. Whose fault is it? <laughs> Who can lay the blame? Oh, I'd have to blame my mother. So, um, so going way back, my mother was a nun for um, 13 years in New York. And my father was in the Brothers. You didn't see that coming, did wow. you? Look at your face. Um, in the States. So very different to the experience of uh, people here. Very different. However, none nonetheless, uh, when she freed herself, which was uh, pre-Vatican II, she, she escaped, basically, one night. Got her father-in-law, or her brother-in-law to pick her up and left. And, um, and then she eventually, she never thought she'd have kids. So when she had me and my sister, not so long after that, um, she was, she said all she did was play with us. 
so we just played and played and played and played and um, you know I don't know if she ever cleaned the house or she, didn't, she wasn't much of a cook <laughs> or anything but we just played and we um, her parents are from Mayo and I, I know all my cousins in fact well one of my cousins is Louis Walsh which is pretty crazy that's hilarious but he doesn't really he doesn't know me actually so but I know his siblings but anyhow uh, so they're all East Mayo Kelchima and Nach and places like that and uh, but they but they're still very much American so I was really brought up with this very American idea that you can be anything you want to be and so she was a real cheerleader for that my dad was too but my dad was much quieter and much more um, she's a real force of nature and so with two daughters who I suppose were encouraged to go into creative work at an early age um, I don't know my, if my dad knew where the hell we all came from to be <laughs> honest the poor guy uh, so I eventually went into this extraordinary um, training program at the age of 12 called the Piven Theatre Workshop, which was in Evanston, which is just right north of Chicago, and was a really big drive for us, actually. I mean, it was a good 45 minutes. Not that far by Chicago standards, but compared to here, yeah. it was like really far away. Um, my saintly dad drove me to <laughs> my classes, but the thing was is that the training was extraordinarily strong. So the people who ran it were Byrne and Joyce Piven, who were trained by Uta Hagen in New York, way back, and then they went to uh, University of Chicago in the 50s. Byrne is dead now. I mean, Joyce must be 80, probably now. But um, so they had founded um, a company called uh, Compass Theatre Company in Chicago in the 50s. I'm going way back. It's okay. I like Um, it. With Mike Nichols and Elaine May, and um, who became very famous in the States. And eventually that group of people, Ed Asner, who played Luke Grant on TV and stuff, they eventually founded Second... They became Second City, or Second City came out of that group. Sure. So Chicago was innovating improvisation, just not just for comedy, but the Pivens took it into a more theatrical tradition. So they married a really strong Stanislavski training between Uta Hagen and this woman called Mira Rostova. I must look her up and see if anyone else has ever heard of her. She devised this amazing system called The Doings, which is about the melody and action of a line... So they had all the Stanislavski stuff and then all of this improvisation work that they married together. And then Paul Sills, the son of Viola Spolin, who founded, made up a lot of the original theater games. She's a great 1970s book about improvisation. So Paul Sills added this other technique called story theater, which was using literary tales, folk tales, but the technique of using third person past tense narration within ensemble games to tell a story as a group. So when the Pivens moved to Chicago and started having babies and whatever, they eventually, when their kids were teenagers, they founded this little workshop. And Byrne was a great big voice. He was like, he could only play the king no matter what he was in. Like, he was really impossible. Very kind of, very huge character. But Joyce was, um, and and a great teacher, but Joyce was really... uh, the magical teacher here. Um, and uh, the workshop was really extraordinary, and, w- and their, their children were trained in the work, and so their first daughter, Shira, was my first teacher, and then their son, Jeremy, who's finally, after 20 years of work in, you know, or more in L.A., has finally really made it to stardom through Entourage. And, uh, and the Cusack family, the Chicago Cusacks, right. as opposed to the Irish Cusacks, um, Joan and John and Anne and Billy and Susie, they were all part of the workshop too. So it was this really tiny, amazing training ground where the training was very, very rigorous and very thorough, but it was all based on games. So rather than, there was text analysis and scene study, and so the, the kind of Stanislavski techniques came through, but really we would start with games like Tag, um, a game called Give and Take, like old-fashioned really cheesy theater games like Machine where everyone has to like go or whatever you know and um, so and then basically that's the work I do it's based all on that foundation and what kind of age group were the rest of the people there I mean you saw like a very rigorous training but, but even yeah, 14 this was the young. yeah it, it was mainly 14 teenagers they founded the workshop to train to 
I guess they taught kids. They were in a wealthy area of Chicago, and um, they started the Young People's Company. So that the Young People's Co- it's really like DYT, but with a very strong artistic directorship. Right, okay. um, so and very much theirs, you know. So you know, Byrne used to come in and tell everyone you're teaching it wrong and all this kind of stuff. So they were very, very. Um, their language and their vocabulary was very consistent and and really strong, but it was also based on impulse and play. So you were never into the head. It was all all about transformation of the space. It was a lot of mime work. And actually the story theater was all really slow motion. (laughs) You know, a little bit spooky. And, you know, Americans tend to be very sincere, so it's also very sincere. And it's still going. It's a huge success story in Chicago. Um, And a very rich training ground, training loads of really great actors who are gracing our television film screens now. (laughs) Um, So I was brought up there, did movies in the 80s along with all the other of them, had a very serious vocation as an actress, thought I would be doing a movie every single summer. Of course. And um, I decided to go to NYU to get very serious acting training that was like more serious than the Piven training. Now, when we talk about 80s movies, yeah. is there any particular iconic movies that you'd well, like to mention in this conversation? There was. I did a half a day's work on my 16th birthday in Ferris Bueller. But this but, is the most incredible motion picture of all time, therefore making you well, the most incredible actress of all time. Well, End hardly. of story. The only really cool thing was, was that they used me like two or three times in the trailer, so it looked like I had the lead, which is really great. <laughs> and the other extraordinary thing about this is that I get paid every year for these three movies because they were, you know, I, I'm SAG, um, SAG actor. So uh, I get residuals. That's and, amazing. you know, like we could have a whole conversation about. Uh, how hard it is here for people to make a living because they uh, they are forced in a way to sell sell themselves completely and well, you, you get, get nothing. that crazy situation where on a TV show like The Tudors you get two guys in the same scene one of whom is making tens of thousands of dollars out of DVD box sets yeah, and, well, and the other guys strong, are strong union big country you know I mean here we just don't have any power so uh, and you know we need the film industry so but unfortunately I think They've really fucked the actors, yeah, well. <laughs> actually. But anyhow, th- that is my opinion, my strong opinion. But maybe they had no other choice but um, but to do that. But anyhow, they're getting you very cheap. Yeah, that's true. Talk to me then about being on, you know, Hollywood movie sets, age sixteen. It was all very. Everything's kind of normal at sixteen, you know. It was really cool though. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was also doing um, Miranda in The Tempest at the Goodman, which is my stage debut. Wow. So I was a really, really serious, serious about acting. And, uh, you know, I would show up in high school and go, oh, I have to go now. <laughs> you know, and drive off to the city or whatever, or get picked up and have to be whisked off to the airport. It was great. I, I took success very well, I have to say. <laughs> and I kind of go, I'm sort of waiting, where have the limousines gone? And I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ, I've been 20 years in this kind of mad country, wow. making work in Ireland. What a bizarre choice that is. Um, uh, but basically, I became slightly disillusioned, so why Ireland and all that? Um, the training in New York was much more Stanislavski-based, much more about, um, like, New York Stanislavski work. So, like, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, kind of early Stanislavski stuff about... So this is at NYU, where there are those NYU, different schools that you can choose. Yeah. Kind of there's, uh, we spoke to Megan Reardon about this, so that's there's right. all those different kind of wings that you yes. can go and, and choose to specialize in. So what was that like for you? It was, um, well, NYU is, is tricky because they, it's a very expensive university. I had money because I had done the films, but I also was on a scholarship and I never would have gotten into anywhere on my grades, <laughs> let's face it. Um, so I got in no problem, but they also, they just have, they accept so many people. You know, and NYU own most of Lower Manhattan and probably most of Upper Manhattan <laughs> by now. You know, so they really—it's a huge, huge machine. NYU, enormous, and uh, it, my, ex, you know, coming out of this very careful workshop in Chicago where the precision was so exact, to a place where there were just thousands of kids. Um, and adults, like people of all ages, but rather than having people in the university who were sent out to the various um, workshops that were already in existence in New York, so the Lee Strasberg Studio, Stella Adler, 
I was at Circle in the Square, which doesn't exist anymore. NYU have one program of their own called um, Experimental Theater Wing, which is strong, you know, but it's much more like a European Lecoq work and, sure. and Bogart's work and that kind of thing. Um, but I generally found the training a bit haphazard, not, you know, but look, I was a really opinionated 18 year old with a, you know, good career behind her already. I had really strong foundation underneath me of what uh, very strong opinionated teachers. And, a, you know, so I was like probably a nightmare <laughs> to teach. Um, and I wanted to be really worked. Um, and I, I wasn't overly impressed with the quality of the teaching in some cases, but also I felt like, you know, I felt like there were just too many people there. Yeah. And uh, they would just sort of accept anybody, really. So I, I thought it was kind of bananas. I also really wanted to learn something um, in terms of history or anything. And we, the work was so intensive in terms of, the, you know, we spent all the time barefoot rolling around the floor. Um, that I was longing for some kind of academic foundation of any kind. So right. foundation's a bit strong. Any kind of introduction to any <laughs> anything, really. So I devised for myself... <laughs> oh, I was, must have been such a pain in the hole. Now NYU have programs all over the year. They've just, can't, they've just finished um, the Dublin program. Yeah. It's gone forever. But, um, or maybe not forever, but it's gone for now. But in those days, there was no... Uh, avenue. So I decided to carve out my own way and told them I was going to, I figured out, I don't know how I worked this out, but that I could go for a year abroad and get accreditation toward right. my degree in Trinity or in, in NYU. And I don't remember who I had to talk to to do this, but anyway, they, they kind of had to let me go. So um, it was a lot cheaper to come to Trinity for the year than it was at NYU, <laughs> but anyhow, so I came to Trinity for the year, and I was part of the Beaver College program at Trinity, wherever Beaver College is, and they have, so we were all from all over the states, Sure. and we lived in this little uh, kind of crazy little house in Adelaide Road, all of which was organized by Richard Cook. See, that's okay. a man who just... <laughs> You know? <laughs> no, it's so to we make arrive. Sense. I arrive like pretty much near my birthday's at the end of September, so everything always happens in the middle of my birthday in the theater and, and you know, beginning of the academic year. So we arrive and it turns into my birthday and uh, there's Richard Cook, you know. Uh, so there's my long relationship with Richard Cook. And um I had a great time in Trinity, you know, met Michael West, met Lenny Abrahamson. They were living together in rooms, they had both one skull and they were impossibly arrogant. Wow. They were unbelievable. Like they were such pricks, really. When I think of it, <laughs> they were, you know, super bright. They were, they were amazing. But I was completely like gobsmacked by them. They were wildly impressive, and they were also in fourth year. And but then there were people like Jonathan Shanky, who was like, who had been the squash squash champion of Ireland and was like super super skinny and addicted to coffee and cigarettes. And he was in all the players' plays. And Dominic West was there and. Uh, Gemma Bodnetz, who's now running Liverpool Playhouse and Every Mess, so, and Connor Linehan, and Karen Ardiff, and Kathy Belton. And so it That's was like, amazing. it was an amazing year. It was an amazing year. And the other thing about it was that because, like, I was already a professional in the States, and in the States, there's such a kind of, you can't really just do theater, you have to get your movies in because yeah. you can't feed yourself otherwise. So there's a real um, strong commercial. Pull and I was already getting really excited about theory and, you know, oh, I loved all the academic stuff between like Lacanian psychoanalysis and all this kind of stuff. I got really turned on by all of that, and uh, and really excited by people in Dublin who were all they wanted to do was talk about stuff. No one had any money. There was one nightclub in town, sides, whatever. Everyone wore like, you know, sloppy jumpers and leggings and ripped up, you know. It was great, it was such, and it was like we owned the place, you know. There was no, we all lived in Temple Bar and in Marion Square and just, you know, it was, it was really kind of magical, especially out of coming from Manhattan, which I know sounds so That's retarded. <laughs> oh, what have I done? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. 
Ugh. And all my cousins were like, you were mad when I decided to move here. We're all trying to get over there. And you're trying, what are you doing moving here? Like, and, and was it that uh, I spent the time here? That yeah, you, you I was just, I totally, said, I, to I totally fell in love with it. And then, but also New York was a really, really kind of weird place. Like this was just before Giuliani was mayor. Okay. Um, it was, you know, compared to now, like they've totally disnified the whole place. It was really, it was really genuinely really seedy all around Times Square, which is where all the acting studios were. So we would float out of the acting studios having done loads of voice work or whatever. But I, I was so naive. I didn't really see what was in front of me. I really didn't. And because I was really young, I was only 18, 19 or whatever. And I remember saying to a guy who was in his 20s, I was like, are there really prostitutes around here? And he was like, oh, yes, my dear. Oh, so I don't know. I was just very open-eyed. Um, but the clincher was this particular June in 1992 after I graduated NYU. So I went back to NYU. I finished. Michael West came over. We weren't an item or anything. We were just great mates. But he was in New York, and we used to go have pints and speak in really bad Northside Dublin accents or whatever. That's <laughs> I go, That's ah, you know. That's how I spend most of my time. <laughs> yeah, it was really good, great fun. And, um, and, uh, and I just really, really missed it and felt the impact of being in the big city very, I don't know, not scary. I'm from the city. My mother's, well, I'm from the suburbs, really, but my mother's a New Yorker. I don't know. I felt, but, uh, the size of Dublin and the proximity of all of these people. And, and also, when I graduated, I knew I was going to go get my headshot done and try to get more work. And people were like, oh, I don't know. I found the whole scene really tough. And then I was also part of this uh, great company in Chicago called New Crime, which John Cusack, here's my, 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 my name dropping for so everyone. I don't really like it. Okay. encourage name dropping here. Anyway, so... Well, what happened was, um, so John was already a film star and had gone to L.A. and had hooked up with Tim Robbins, who had an acting company out there called Actors Gang, and they're still, they're still in operation. Yeah. And act, I found this out much, much later, and I was really relieved to hear that the work in Actors Gang had really legitimate theatrical roots in Minushkin. So... What happened was there was this actor in Minushkin's company in Teatro du Soleil who toured to the United States in the mid early mid eighties, and his name was was George Bigot, and he defected to L.A., left the company, and started teaching comedia. Right. So uh, Actors Gang was a comedia company that Tim ran, and then John was in a show of theirs in L.A. and brought the style to Chicago, and then all the people who had been trained in Piven. Who, where we were already really good in, improvisers, we were skilled in mime and in all of this kind of stuff. It kind of was a really good training ground for the style. And uh, he founded Actors Gang. And so the, the deal was he would basically pay for the productions, but none of us would get paid. We had to, okay. um, you know, if you wanted to be in this company, you have to be down for the cause, man, and all this kind of stuff. And we were all equity actors, but over there that's very very strict and so we couldn't say you know we all used fake names in the programs and it was all kind of wild and you would show up every night to, to do workshops and if you were late everyone was mean to you and it was really amazing it was mostly young men who just wanted you know it was and they, they loved taking off their clothes and they were like it's about getting you know you gotta foam at the mouth man it was like it's quite tough to be a girl I might say I might say and they were all a bit older so it was very kind of a crazy intense time so I did a couple of shows with them but really very peripheral and I was very much in extra roles and then in one of those plays I left the play actually to come to Dublin for my academic year so in college I was sort of introduced to new crime and doing the style and eventually graduated came back to Chicago really missing Ireland in this kind of weird you know auditioning for films which are great but also as a girl like you know the, the clincher for me was auditioning for um for the role of um Lucy in Dracula so they had already cast Winona Ryder okay. who I knew because we were in our first films together the first film together I hadn't seen her in a while anyway but and I haven't seen her for years and years right. now obviously but um she uh, and she and I kind of looked very alike in those days, really short hair. I was like, they're not going to cast me in this role. Anyway, the audition was, 
I had to pretend to have an orgasm on a tombstone and they were putting that on videotape and sending the tape to LA and I was like this is just not what I want to do um, to you know throw myself around and I was like no one's going to cast me as that anyway and I thought I'm not funny enough to be look I probably could have had a fine career in Los Angeles and if I had followed everyone out to LA to do that I would have been probably on Murphy Brown and maybe had been like you know somebody's friend and friends and stuff but like I'm not a comedian but right. I maybe I just didn't feel like I was kind of hot enough to be a leading you know Julia Roberts type I don't know I just felt like what really excited me were these people these mad heads in Ireland who were right. basically funnier and smarter than okay. anyone I knew over there. So then when, not anyone I knew but you know yeah but, so when did but the say okay look I've, I tried well, this was this is how I was tricked into it. So, um, there was a June in 1992 where every day was blazing sunshine. I decided I have to go back to Ireland. So I came back um, when Do the two Dominics, Dominic Garrity and Dominic West, were graduating. Okay. So they and and a whole bunch of other mad people, and uh, and Michael West was already out but pretending to do some kind of M fill. So he was living in Trinity in these extraordinary rooms that George Dawson had. And George, God rest him, is dead. But he was the founder of the genetics department, but also the founder of the Douglas Hyde Gallery. So the entire place was covered in Miro and Bracken and Joyce had come out of copyright. So they were all Lenny and and um, Lenny and Michael and a whole bunch of those guys founded, um, we're in talks about founding um, a recording studio called Bow Lane, and they were also working on Three Joes, which Lenny, it was Lenny's first short, and Michael wrote and stuff, so they were doing these amazing projects, and they were also editing Finnegan's Wake, so, because Oliver Joyce was out of copyright right. for, for a short time, and uh, so there I was in these, you know, and I was, and you know, we kind of weren't really together, we were just mates still but nevertheless blazing sunshine every day drinking pints on the street wandering up to trinity to stay in these rooms covered in artwork and talking about joyce i was like this place is so much better than yeah. america <laughs> and then we went back you know somebody's friend had a party in their uncle's palatial pad in cork and then the clincher was um, we were invited to vivian guinness's 40th birthday party because she was friends um someone we knew and anyway so we ended up I was just completely blown away and then I went back and the night I went back to Chicago I was kind of seeing this really nice guy at the time and uh, we ended up going to this club with all the new crime heads and outside suddenly they were like duck and look I have never seen a gun in my life as an American so like I'm not you know I don't know anything for guns but anyhow this guy pulled out a gun with apparently a silencer on it. Now I don't know what that even you know, I wouldn't know I wouldn't have known what that was. But anyway, nobody shot each other, but it was actually quite a riling thing. And I really just and then and then we were set up in this apartment in the John Hancock building for the night. And the John Hancock building is the second tallest building in Chicago. Okay. Which is like this huge, huge skyscraper. So so like just after coming back from Ireland I'm in this giant skyscraper. We almost got shot at. I don't know. It was just too much. And, and I just really, I don't know. I, and then my parents were moving to Florida. And I just went, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. Which was kind of a crazy thing, which is why I, I you know, uh, <laughs> I'm, you know I, I very much wonder what, I, what else was I running from here. You know? Right, okay. Like, there's a much okay, deeper... Though. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. But it is a strange thing to pick up and leave your country. Although, you know, through the boom, I was very much aware that for my aunts and my cousins in the West, um, particularly uh, my one particular aunt, where all of her children stayed, like loads of them built houses right on the land. And probably this is the first generation since the famine who've done that. So I was really, you know, in our family, who I was really aware of this, that that it was an extraordinary time and, and huge change. And I was really like, this isn't the Ireland I wanted to live in. <laughs> so the whole boom was really uh, quite a strange, mad thing. And by that time, me and Michael were absolutely together. And uh, we've been 
kind of watching the boom happen and then fall away around us and well then talk to me then about you know once you come back over here how did corn exchange come about well i was under the ridiculous illusion that i would be acting and so and i did do a bit of acting but i was probably well i'm sure i was you know really problem to work with in a sense because <laughs> so I was so opinionated because I was so on fire for it yeah. and and really my training in in the states and particularly with new crime encouraged everyone to like fucking go for it you know yeah. like you fucking throw down you you ask questions you want to be the like it's that american thing throw the ball faster or whatever the hell you know how far can you go like it's really people take that you know it's in you somehow um, but that isn't the way people work here <laughs> Oh, I had a couple of really funny, funny things like, um, oh, we did this play once called Sardines. Um, it's a bit of a mess, I don't mind saying, but, um, you know, in the beginning, we were talking earlier before the interview about the different roles, the role of the actor and the role yeah. of being in charge of everything, really, where's the responsibility? But as an actor, I was already really interested in the bigger picture. So there was one play uh, where we I was looking at this door. We were, happened to be rehearsing in the same place where they were building the set, which is really unusual. And I was watching this guy build a door that was like really important door for the play, like in and out of this door the whole time. And he was trying to attach it with a little ball bearing. And I went, you know what? That's not going to work. Every time the door closes, it's going to open again. And I'm watching this guy build this door going, hmm, that's a real problem. And Catherine Walsh, God love her, was with me. And Catherine Walsh is the kindest, like like most sincere most rooted like very serious person in a way and i was like i'm gonna find out what they're doing to that door and she goes no it's not your job and i literally dragged her across <laughs> this huge hall to go excuse me what's your you know and and you only have to ask david parnell what i was like to work with because he had the misfortune of having to direct me right before i started acting or started directing myself so uh the way i started Directing is really I started teaching the work from Chicago. Sure. So I would start running. I started running workshops with um, Michael Murphy had this famous Workshop which was the beginning of Barabbas. He did, ran a three-week intensive and really no one had done this before So people were so hungry for it. So I taught uh, theater games and story theater um, with Michael he taught uh, red nose work Michelle Reed taught mask Natalie Stringer taught something, I can't remember, <laughs> and uh, I taught Commedia. So it was like a three-week intensive where that's where we met Andrew Bennett, Dennis Conway was part of that workshop, um, loads of people were yeah. there, and that, and that was the start of it, really. And then um, we started performing the style in the Ormond Multimedia Center to a bunch of ravers on ecstasy, and then the Fringe... Jimmy Faye founded the Fringe yeah. Festival in 1995 and decided, um, and so it was a natural platform. We were already working, so it was a, it was a natural step. Talk to me about the style, the comedy style okay. that you guys use, because it seems to be a kind of a, a mode of working that has been hugely fruitful for you guys. Mm. But I, I'm interested in why you choose to stick with it over that length of time and, and how it doesn't become uh, a, a limiting thing. Well. I mean, the answer is that I don't really stick with it at all. Like, <laughs> it morphs and changes. We come back to the style in the workshops because it's a really fast-track way of getting actors to completely embody every single moment. And on a scale of 1 to 10, you've got to play in 10 all the time! So it's very, very sort of hardcore. It's impossible. It's really scary. It completely throws everybody into the the deep end on day one um, uh, and you know asking them to it asks so much expertise and and you know it asks everyone to be brilliant improvisers to be good mime artists to be good at makeup which you know to be good at uh, you know because on day one you have to come up with physical image for a character in full white face mask and everything and uh, and improvise in this really highly stated emotional states you know it demands impossible expertise but that's precisely why we do it because it demands so much of people and and they have a great sense of achievement at the end of a four-day workshop do but, you find it gets people out of their own way as well 
But completely. You so many other things than you usually have to think about. Yes. It, just, it gets, removes a lot of the Yeah, stuff like there's no time. I mean, the games are like this as well. There's just no time to think. You, you, you want to be in the body, in the space, and not in your head. Now, yeah. of course, when you come to text, that's different. And, you, and, and the nature of a rehearsal is very, very different to the workshops. But where we find in the training, it, it provides a foundation for the rehearsals and for creating the work really and and again that really has changed so like we're not doing Dubliners in the style really at all but we are using elements of it we are using I, there may be a hint of mask but we're not going to be playing you know obviously a lot of the stories are in third person narration so there is a connection with the audience but in terms of that hardcore old way of like when you using direct address with the audience yes. all the time in that very percussive, pure way. Um, it doesn't suit the piece, so like, why would we do it if it doesn't suit the piece? So, you know, uh, we use bits of it that might serve us, and we certainly, like, I find it a very useful tool to, as I do lots of other stuff that's come into the work. So over the last 20 years, we've sort of taken the piv the Piven work and the the bastard version of Minushkin's Commedia work, whatever that, you know, Chinese whispers to us. And then through doing pieces like Dublin by Laplight and Every Day in particular, um, people like Louis Lovett, people like Marco Halloran, you know, have changed the style. Yeah. Bennett, you know, every show we've done actually has, we found a new rule, even like back in the day when we were doing like strict style, every show we did, we found a new rule or we broke a new rule and found, ah, we can do this in the style too, and this we can do in the style. And now, so the style is sort of bleeding away, 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 but we still use it as a foundation for vocabulary. Sure. And certainly it's really useful in that I, you know, an actor can play anyone. It's, it's great not to be too, too literal on the stage. Um, you have to suit your role to some degree, but it's very freeing for someone to play somebody who has a huge arse or a whatever is really different to themselves. And certainly in that work, people are encouraged to go f so much further than they think they could go. So when you talk about having that there as a vocabulary, how important for you then is it to kind of stay with that sense of an ensemble? Then? Like you talk about someone like Mark Allen or someone like Andrew Bennett who comes back and comes back and comes back. How useful is it to have those experienced players there with you? Well, it's hugely important. And uh, for years, I really felt that, that my vision for the Corn Exchange was about creating this very strong ensemble who would be versed and expert in these in this way of working and so therefore when they came to text they you know they would know everything already so you know it meant it would mean that eventually it becomes a really super efficient way of working because and in some ways it still is <laughs> where I can just say something you know if I, I can say oh and you know Andrew why don't you play a one there and he would know what that means or whatever or if I talk about somebody oh, that's a little bit like a pantalone or something yeah. whatever like they know what I'm talking about without it being a long conversation yes okay so it, it really is more it, it is eventually more efficient but what really happened is that um, with the cuts in funding I realized that that vision really can never happen and what I realized that that I was kind of holding a false that the vision for it was all was never ever going to work, and and actually the first indication of that was way before the funding cut, was around two thousand and or and six or seven, when I was trying to really gather people and ask actors to really commit, to training, yeah. and uh, they were like, well, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the answer was no one showed up the next day. Okay. Of those. There were only six of them. And they were, they're all my favorite people that I cast all the time now too. But you know, the real thing was that I, you've, a freelance actor has to be remunerated properly. You've got to be contracted if you want to work. Yeah. So that was a big kind of, okay, well, hmm. <laughs> or they were all saying, yeah, like totally hire me, yes. but no, I'm not going to be committed to your ensemble idea in a way, you know? Yeah. So that was a kind of first oh, that kind of utopian idea wasn't going to happen. And then with the funding cut, which happened much later, 
um, it was a very hard, like I really had to grieve for that idea. And, and I felt, oh, I don't have a vision anymore for the company. I don't know what I'm doing now. Like, what does it mean to continue if I can't train people? But what I realized was that all along, I've always had new people in every show. I've always meant to have a company that's consistent, but I have never done a show where I don't have at least one or two or three people, maybe even more, who I've never met before, really, apart yeah. from an audition or something, or or maybe they've done one workshop or something. But I, the basic thing is that I've always started from scratch again, and I used to feel like, and I still feel like, oh Christ, I'm doing the same thing again, starting from the beginning. But actually now I'm really grateful for that because um, I know that that is the only way forward. Sure. That And, you know, I don't know, the future is so uncertain and, you know, certainly that Arts Council money, I don't believe it will ever come back in Arts Council form. I mean, maybe it will. We're certainly going to ask for it. But, um, but I think the name of the game has changed completely and it's now a matter of co-production of, you know, like Dubliners is a, a Dublin Theatre Festival are absolutely backing the show more they have more money than we do they're yeah. putting in more money than we have for it you know because our grant is so small well i wouldn't so talk to you first... about that, that arts council cut because it seems to me it, uh, my recollection of it is that it came at a time when you guys were being particularly successful oh it was a really strange time well look they were you know my perception may i say is subjective here of course um you know, and I have huge sympathy for what they were trying to do at the time in there where, and, and are continuing to try to do. So, you know, we're in this system where it's, there's one pie and we all get a piece of it. And, you know, there is a sense of the old woman who lives in a show, shoe and for the older kids, you've got to say, see you later, go fend for yourself. I mean, that's really what's happening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, and so, I, I mean, I can't comment on it more than like, okay, <laughs> we will find a way. Yeah. And uh, but the way that I, I think everyone does have to kind of have to fend for themselves now in a different kind of way. And the, the timing of the cut was so bizarre for us because I had gone into them going, I, I really know how to work now through freefall. I really, really know how to work. And I never really felt that before. And we had found a way of working on the floor, which in the rehearsal room, which was really extraordinary. It was incredibly difficult to make that show. We made it really fast. We conceived of it, you know, it's like having another baby, for God's sake, but we, we conceived it just as the whole economy was falling yeah. in December of 2008, like November, December 2008. And when I knew I wanted to do another piece about contemporary Dublin, like every day, but then the economy fell and said, well, this is obviously what it has to be about. And so we started cooking up the whole story and then the Ryan report came and we went, well, we have to address this. So, but we premiered, like we made it in such a short period of time and really like it was very, really pressurized. But the thing that really saved us was our yoga practice in a way. It sounds, and I'm becoming more and more of a total yoga devotee and my language is becoming more and more purple with it by every week my Irish cast are going oh Jesus here she goes again with her yoga but uh but you know we we started every day every day we washed the floor and we did an hour of yoga and that was really not so much to make people bendy at all but to prepare our minds to work on this really difficult material that's changing all the time to, but to bring into the room an energy of gratitude an energy of of uh, support for ourselves individually and therefore then support for each other and it it really changed the dynamic i mean the, we our rehearsal rooms have always been really pretty happy places but this was an extraordinary thing in that there wasn't a single moment of resistance and for a director that's a really big thing you know if yeah. you say if you make a suggestion to an actor and they go yeah well yeah okay i'll try it i'll try it <laughs> you know you're you're really in trouble yeah. already you know it, you you can't force an idea on someone. You have to allow them to. They have to own it. Yeah. They have to own it. And your job is to open a door and hope they walk through or invite them through or something like that. So, so all the comedia work and all that stuff is so secondary to that. Like that provides a great vocabulary, but actually, it's more for me really about creating a space 
where people can can come forward with, the, with their ideas. And oh, I'm kind of talking all over the place here, but um, this ensemble for Dubliners, it, I've got a couple of my old favorites. I have Marco Halloran, and I have Derva Krashi, and I have Ruth McGill. And I'm so grateful to have them in the room because they know the work so well, yeah. and they gave a great confidence to the other company members who are all new. And actually, Barbara Bergen has done a lot of work in workshops with me. So, so she and she has a great yoga practice too, which helps. But, um, but you know, I'm working with a lot of young guys who are really new to the work. And Mark Lambert, who's not so young, but is completely new to the Corn Exchange. So, um, and that, you know. That takes time. So what I'm trying to do in this really short rehearsal period is, you know, I mean, we're on. You're catching me on day two of rehearsals, <laughs> and today I came in, and yesterday we didn't wash the floor because I thought it'd be a bit much on the first day. But today I came in and filled the buckets, and the lads looked at me like, "You're not fucking serious." <laughs> and I started washing the floor, and they were like, "I look, like, you know, you can join me if you wish." And so, but they really are going, "Oh my." God, she's going to have us wash the floor. But it's such a nice thing to work on a clean floor. It really is. And um, it is a nice thing to take care of the space. And they'll get used to no, it, I some, think. There's something in that, the ritualistic end yeah, that. Just preparing absolutely. the space as a, this is where we're going to make yeah. it work. There's something yeah. about like, going through that physical act. Well, the idea of a practice, yeah. you know, and the idea of ritual. It's a real relief to have started. But what I'm trying to do is, so I'm doing the yoga and then a bit of voice work. And then I'm trying to cram in a bit of the training in like half an hour or something and so we might do a game or an exercise or throw like trying to throw them into improvised third person narration like we how we made shows like uh every day and dublin by lamplight and stuff and uh you know so i'm having to kind of train them really quickly but at least i feel like my background is one where i've always had new people in the room so i've always had so i'm really good at starting from scratch and i feel like my future whatever that is going to be is going to take me out of Ireland more and more. So I'm probably going to be like we'll, we've been invited to do a co-production with National Theatre of Scotland, which is amazingly exciting. I'm not sure what the hell to do with them, but um, but uh, I did one week of workshops with a bunch of fantastic actors over there, and I'd love to do something that combines. The great thing about them is that they're in no rush, which is so unusual for me to hear. I actually was like. I almost fell off my chair. I was like, okay, well, we could do this idea or this idea, or we could do this, or now I was thinking about, you know, I can't really do it in 20, maybe 2013. And they're like, any, any, you do it whenever you're ready. And I was like, really? <laughs> Where's the catch? <laughs> We're allowed to develop the work? <laughs> I almost burst into tears. I swear to God, I couldn't believe it. And then even, you know, I've been talking, I've been really lucky and, a great advocate of our company uh, has been Port Cusack, who works at the National in London, and I've been talking to their um, people at the studio, and they're like, oh, well, we'd love to develop Dubliners with you. And I was like, oh, my God, that'd be great. But um, the festival might want us to do it this September. And they were like, this, like, this is like February. Like, this September? It's like, well, yes. <laughs> So here I am, you know, it's kind of crazy, but um, it's not the ideal way of working. It absolutely isn't. But there is nothing like a fire under your arse yeah. to, it's you know, helps. it certainly helps. And the other thing about it is that the that I have no time to do anything innovative with the stories at all. Like we just have to work on first impulse, which is really scary. But I think actually is probably the only way to do them anyway. <laughs> At least, you know, yeah. I'm really looking forward to someone else's contemporary version where they totally rip it up. But for the first embodiment of these stories in the gaiety for Dublin Theatre Festival, I feel like all the work that we've done with Dublin by Lamplight and Everyday and Freefall and even Man of Valor and even earlier work like Foley has provided a foundation and a language that just suits this material so well that I feel like I have the tools to teach, albeit really fast, and to um, to put it on the stage using some of these techniques in a really, really simple way. And, and so we're trying to keep the balance between really letting the language speak and letting the stories 
trying to like stay out of the way of the story in a way yeah. and, and try to let the story amazing stories I mean, it's like, that amazing book still stories. feels to me ridiculously contemporary it's so and that's really it's so contemporary I mean it's it, things haven't changed much is what I can see and uh, you know and again I have a, an absolutely outsider's perspective but um, when I read Dubliners more recently I just couldn't believe how it was exactly I was like I, I couldn't believe how fresh the material yeah. was, how contemporary it was. And I, I know a lot of people think they've read it, but they haven't really, or they haven't read it since they were a kid. Yeah. And they they are so rich. And what we really want is for people to come out of the gaiety and go back to the book and, and you know, really celebrate the book for being so on the yeah. money. Talk to me a bit about what it's like to work with Michael. Uh, oh, because you talk about you know, every time you come back to New York, start, start from scratch. I mean, one of the With main Michael, consistent things is, is that, that Michael is there through a lot of the corner exchange. Work. Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, so like we're together and everything, but we're we started as colleagues, so yeah. we really did. So our first, you know, I, I got to know him a little bit that year in Trinity, but you know, he he was so highfalutin. I was hanging out with the first years mostly, and uh, toward the end of the year. I think he saw me act in something, that was it. And then I saw his A Play on Two Chairs yes. with Mandy Hogan and Dominic West. And, um, and I went, oh my God, this, it was St. Patrick's Day. Where's the music? Where's the violence? St. <laughs> Patrick's Day, uh, 1990. And it was ISDA, the ISDA festival. And it was, it was all in the kind of crazy ballroom place in where the fringe launch the fringe festival club was last oh, year yes, okay so yes, it's that indeed. building i was like i know this building anyway so um uh his play on two chairs looked like the piven games but a piss take right of it. so like you know like the way everything is like everything here's like a piss take of whatever it is like you know what i mean you can never be too you can never really say it like it is you have to yeah. always rip the piss out of so i was so astonished by this and so taken with it that i sauntered up to him and went we really should work together or probably more if we really should work together whatever my accent was um and so we did that summer we did this piece called scene around six which was an ensemble of six including jonathan shanky and dominic and um uh Mandy Hogan, who was in Two Chairs, and Stephen Rennix, who does the music for all of Lenny's movies. And uh, anyway, so uh, we, it was basically an ensemble piece about transformation. So it was so corn exchange in a way. And, and what happened was I taught the games. I was like, okay, look, this is, I know how to deliver this idea. These are the tools you need. So I taught them all, of, all, all the stuff. And basically following the ensemble principle that you never, it would be far better for the ensemble to find the transformation than for the director to go, and now you lead this next yeah. transformation. So the way it worked was that it was six people walking in different lines, so walking back and forth a lengthways across the stage, and then eventually someone would go, and we were, became lanes of traffic. And then one of us would crash into someone, and then we became a car crash, and then out of that we became... I can't remember, something else, and then we became a bed, and then we became ants at a picnic, and so it was all of this transformation stuff, which is totally, basically, the kind of piven work, yeah. um, and I was hauling Michael out, going, no, you can't give us direction like this, it has to be like this, because otherwise, you're leading us, and we have to lead from within the ensemble, or it's not organic transformation, so this is the piven, like, this yeah. must be like this, so from the beginning, I'm hauling him out of the room, bossing him <laughs> around, the poor guy, so it wasn't until much later that we accidentally started whatever from yeah. around, and that, which was a total shock to the two of us, absolutely a shock. So our foundation is really as colleagues, as friends. But knowing each other as well as you do, presumably there's a level of honesty and frankness. And like oh, you say, absolutely. That, that, a shortcut and a shorthand in terms and of And of course, great it. taste. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, we would really share taste very much so. But... Um, but absolutely a shorthand. I mean, that, but you know, two kids later, 20 years later, it can be, you know, it's very, it can be very stressful. And we're so relieved with Dubliners that at least we don't have to make this up. <laughs> like, at least we don't have we're to make it up. We just have to polish the roof Oh, I can't tell you. Because for all of the years that, that we've been making work, the, I think the hardest, hardest, hardest thing is inventing narrative, which, you know, 
you probably have some experience. Yes, indeed. And uh, you know, with Man of Valor in particular, but also with Freefall, uh, Man of Valor really needed to be a narrative structure because it was a movie. <laughs> it was a Hollywood movie, so it had to have a strong narrative structure. But you know, like to figure out, well, well, what is the call to action? It could be anything and you really realize why it takes so long for people to actually make decent movies like so much more respect for you know the Hollywood way is amazing um, so in this one we're under well the pressure isn't between me and Michael in the way that it would have been for for some of the other work where um, we very much would conceive the work together or I would go I want to do you know like with Freefall it should be like this or maybe it should be you know, first it was going to be about two couples, a kind of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf thing, and then we said, no, it was actually Jane Cox, our lighting designer in New York, was like, no, it should be about one person's consciousness. Okay, and then we came upon the, the stroke thing, and the, so it was, it's all terribly organic and like conceived together, but then eventually Michael writes stuff yeah. and comes back with a draft that I often too violently rip up and tear apart and you know so it, it's 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 tough you know like not in front of the children yes indeed oh this would be the you best know? yeah um, as you look back on the body of work that is you know what the corner has put out i mean are there are there moments that stand out for you because i mean there, there are moments that stand out for me having seen i think the first time i encountered something might have been baby jane so i'm kind of right wow so but for me i mean there are two moments that stand out in my mind and it as a, an image of, of Ruth Negga in Lolita, and I knew Ruth inside out because we trained oh, together yeah. for three years, and suddenly this was someone unrecognisable, entirely transformed mm. on stage. And equally, then I guess ten years on, I had the same thing. I've seen Paul Reed in Man of Valor, a guy who I grew up with for twenty years, yeah. completely transformed on stage as well. I mean, yeah. is that transformative element something that's kind of coming through the work, yeah. or are, are there ones that stand out for you as going? That's when I really felt we were firing on all cylinders. Gosh, well, the tran the transformation element is absolutely the core of all of it. So I feel like the work, the theatre is about transformation. The and the actor's job is to transform the space. Now, the light and the set and all that stuff support that. But actually, we're experiencing whatever the piece is through the actor. And it's the actor's job to, um, to help frame... The shot, if you like. So, like, if it's a close-up, if it's a, if we want to be wherever the attention of the audience needs to be, the dynamic of the actors need to shape that attention. Sure. So, and and the whole thing is ultimately about transformation. Anyway, like, you want to transform people's hearts. Like, you want people, like, the nature of, and you know, this is like I'm interested in in basically narrative work, which is not so fashionable I know but I don't care about what's fashionable no I, I mean I don't mean about but I don't mind uh, I, I really like abstracted narrative work too like huge huge fan of um, of uh, Wooster Group I'm so excited that they're coming to the festival it's going to be really amazing Scott Shepard is such a great actor and whatever however they pair it up with whatever mad thing they're going to do is going to add so much richness to the text um, but in any case, for me, it's all about the skill of transformation because we're working with nothing. It's the empty space. It's, there's nothing there, guys. So that is, and I really try to encourage people with the whole ensemble that you can go anywhere and we will buy it as long as you buy it. And with Paul in particular, and Paul is so gifted in, in such a particular way, um, he's got such a bizarre gift for spatial transformation. But he would do something tiny, so minimal physically, and he would go, does that read? And i go, yeah, it totally reads. It actually does. And then I heard of this great story. I have, didn't take this workshop, but Fiona Shaw gave a workshop in, in um, the Abbey about intention. Right. And it's some exercise where two people, and one actor has, to, has a painting, and you have to do the painting for the other actor, the group, or whatever, without any words. And so whatever, you have to use sound and act it out and sure. run around this space. But the precision, like the detailed work that people got, like there's a guy up in the corner of the frame and he's on a chair and he's old or whatever. Like, like they, go, they got it. In other words, intention will always read. If your intention is strong enough, we will know it. And now we 
like it's my job to feel like me and everyone who will ever see this play <laughs> will feel this connection to whatever you're doing. But you know, that, I feel like that's what I try to do: is sit myself in the in the shoes of the audience experience for the first time and go well, and try to and then try to make we try to make the strongest possible dramatic choices on the floor so that the story reads in the clearest possible way and uh, but absolutely you could become anybody so we and we will believe that you're a huge fat lady with big boobs and a beehive hair even if you're dressed exactly as you are in a miniskirt with <laughs> Angus you know this, I this, like it's, your it's legs. It's what I like to do with my weekends. <laughs> um, and that's brilliant. I'm so excited about Castle Dublin has been posted for the festival. I think Thanks it's going to so be a much. really, really exciting show. I know you've got a great team attached to it. Yeah, um, we're really, we're at the beginning. <sighs> but, um, but you know, we're really excited. It's, it's a great, great team of people. I'm looking forward to it so much. Anyway, thank, thank you so much for being on the podcast. That was an absolute joy. Thanks. <laughs> So there you have it, the great Annie Ryan. What a great chance it was to sit down and chat with her. Uh, she's a lady who I've been a massive fan of for quite some time. What a director. Uh, and what a great actress as well, it has to be said. Just an absolute pleasure to go and uh, to go and chat to her and listen to her story. It's been uh, it's been a really interesting road for her. And uh, delighted I got a chance to uh, for her to share it with me and then for me to share it with you. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the country. Uh, at Theatre Upstairs, we have Jack Cairo and the Long Hard Kiss Goodbye, which I got a chance to see the other day which is great um, this week they are playing uh, the standard lunchtime slot at 1 o'clock but also they're playing 7 o'clock evening shows and that is going to be followed by Perfidia which is coming back which opened uh, the whole new venue for them there with the brilliant Tuna Kavanagh uh, that's coming back uh, after that um, the Viking Theatre has Tuesdays with Mari uh, the Gate has A Woman of No Importance Bewley's Cafe Theatre has Pocket Music which I'm getting in to see today I think uh, and that'll of course be followed by Village Wooing Smock Alley has The Lark from Fast Intent and at the Project Art Centre, um, AC Productions have their latest production, which is uh, a wonderful little bit of Shakespeare with a pretty amazing cast. It's much ado about nothing, and uh, there's a pretty amazing cast that they have put together, including the great Terry Orr, who uh, who worked for us at Rose Productions when we did our, our second show at the festival last year when we did Tear Down the Walls Terry came in and, and played that with us with the with the great Keith Hanna so uh, that looks really interesting they, um, they've they set it in 1960s Italy and it'll be playing at the Project Cube from the 13th but they've got two previews uh, at Civics Loose End on the 10th and the 11th uh, the new theatre has the pitch and of course our friends at the Abbey Theatre have the Plough and the Stars as we move around the country Cork has Gorilla Days in Ireland at the Everyman um, also 47 Roses by Peter Sheridan is at the Grain Store out in Ballymore uh, and the Cork Arts Theatre has a whole range of stuff going on at the moment between lunchtime shows and evening shows. Uh, best thing to do because there's so many things going on there at the moment is to check them out at corkartstheatre.com. As we go west to Galway, the Town Hall has the May by Karina Carr kicking off soon. Um, that is from Mephisto Theatre Company. And uh, and then also we shall be on the road again heading to the sunny southeast. Um, Rise Productions will be at the Gap Festival in Ballythomas, Wexford with two performances of fight night there on Friday the 10th and Saturday the 11th. Do please come down and check us out and support the team here if you get the chance. So look, that is us. That is episode 40 in the books. Jesus, who'd have thought we'd get this far? Uh, we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Thank you.